today we're looking at the topic of sex and temptation. We're up to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let me lead us in prayer as we come to God's word. Will you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, as we come now to your word, we pray that you would be helping us to trust in your good purposes for our lives. We know that our bodies are a temple for the Holy Spirit. And so we pray now that by your Spirit, you would help us to understand your word, to believe your word, to live your word. That we would not fall into temptation, but rather glorify you with our bodies. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, over the last 100 years, our world has been through an extraordinary revolution in attitudes to sex, especially in the West. It began with the advent of contraception. And suddenly, sex could be disassociated from children. In time, sex would be disassociated from marriage itself. But our world has found itself increasingly on a quest for sexual freedom. That freedom to move in with your boyfriend before marriage, freedom to enjoy a one-night stand, freedom to have an affair on the side, freedom to look at pornography to fulfill our sexual desires. Now, of course, in so many cases, this so-called freedom has actually led to bondage, the degrading of women, the sexualization of television, the enslaving of women in the sex trade, the addiction of pornography, the pain of unfaithfulness, broken marriages, and much more. And so suddenly what God created to be beautiful within marriage has become very ugly indeed. As we turn our backs on God, our world finds itself with these twisted, destructive, and enslaving desires. Well, our topic this morning is sex and temptation. It's a topic that is deeply personal for each one of us, an area that touches on our deepest longings, a topic that may recall memories of joy, memories of despair, perhaps even the deepest of guilt. Now, my aim this morning is that as we think about sex and temptation, that we will see how much our bodies matter to God and how God's design for sex is so much better than that the cheap substitutes that we often settle for. I want us to see that true sexual freedom is about living out God's design, not the dangerous and destructive path of sexual immorality. Now, let's remind ourselves of the context we saw in chapter 5 last week, uh, that there had been a case of gross sexual immorality in the church. A man had been sleeping with his stepmother, and instead of disciplining him, the church in Corinth was proud. And so Paul wrote to them in the strongest of terms, chapter 5, verse 9 to 11. He said, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you wouldn't need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Now, by sexual immorality here, Paul means any kind of sexual stimulation outside of marriage, whether that be fornication, sex before marriage, uh, adultery, wrong sex uh, within marriage to someone you're not married to, 
uh, homosexuality, incest, sex with a close relative, pedophilia, sex with a child, bestiality, sex with an animal, and so on. Now, Paul expects the church to take drastic action against sexual immorality or indeed any gross evil in the church. If someone is claiming to be a Christian and living in unrepentant sins like these, he encourages the church to break fellowship with such a person who is a hypocrite, denying their faith by their works. That they were to take this action not in a spirit of arrogant judgmentalism, but motivated by love to show the seriousness of the sin and the necessity of repentance. Well, now as we come to verses 12 to 20, he now addresses this issue of sexual immorality theologically. And the first point this morning is that sexual freedom doesn't work. Sexual freedom doesn't work. Uh, he begins in verses 12 to 14 by addressing two statements they've made to justify their sexual freedom. Now, firstly, in verse 12, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. So there is the first justification they have. All things is lawful for me. It's probably a quote from some in the church who felt that they were above moral rules, that their bodies had nothing to do with their spiritual lives. Now, Paul agrees, in a sense, that, that their Christians are not under the Old Testament law. Christians are free, we're saved by grace, not by works of the law. But Paul disagrees that that, that Christian freedom means that we can now live however we want. Paul gives two answers. Firstly, he says, not all things are helpful. For me or for others. As we'll see, sexual sin is sin against our own body. But it's also sin against the Lord. Sin against our future spouse and the person that we've committed the sin with. Now see, sometimes our problem with sexual sin is that we deceive ourselves into thinking that no one gets hurt. We won't get hurt and no one else will get hurt. I mean, what does it hurt to look at a few pictures on the internet? No one will ever know. What does it matter to sleep with my boyfriend or girlfriend before we're married? After all, we love each other. No one will get hurt. And those are deceptions that are as old as sin itself. To think that sin has no consequences, well, that's a deception that goes all the way back to the fall at the Garden of Eden, where Satan said to Eve, there won't be any consequences. You won't surely die. It'll be good. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Sin in its deception promises liberation and happiness. But Paul reminds us that freedom doesn't mean freedom to be selfish. And freedom doesn't mean that there are no consequences of our sin. Let's just take pornography, for example. Now, it's easy to forget that the people on the screen are real people with real lives, isn't it? And some have been enslaved. Many are depressed. Many end up on drugs. Some have been sold into prostitution with awful consequences. And pornography not just affects them, but it affects ourselves. It, it affects how we think about ourselves and how we relate to other people. 
And it will certainly have consequences when we finally have to tell our spouse or our future spouse about our habits. They'll feel betrayed. They'll feel appalled. It may end up costing us the relationship that we desire so much. Sin always has consequences, both for ourselves and for others. Not all things are helpful, Paul says. Well, Paul has a second response in verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Now, Paul is saying that sexual freedom is not real freedom. Because it turns out that sin is not freeing, it's actually enslaving. And that is particularly the case for sexual sin. Uh, anyone who has struggled with pornography or premarital sex knows just how true that is. We get addicted to sin. And even if we want to stop, we find it hard to do so. Again and again, we keep telling ourselves, oh, this will be the last time, this will be the last time. Only to find out it's not, we repeat the sin again. And it's because sin enslaves us. Sexual sin enslaves us. Sin is not freedom. Sin is slavery. Well, Paul addresses a second justification that the Corinthians seem to have in verse 13. They're saying food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Now, that's probably a quote from some in the church that thought that they were above moral rules, that their bodies had nothing to do with their spiritual lives. Now, this classically comes from a particularly Greek philosophical view probably related to their denial of the bodily resurrection. Now, again, in a sense, Paul agrees with the statement, food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food, but the problem here is with the application. Just because the body is created with a natural inclination towards sex, it doesn't mean that we can use our bodies however we like. Because, as Paul reminds us, God will judge us for how we use our bodies. Paul goes on, God will destroy both one and the other. On Judgment Day, we'll have to give an account for how we've lived our lives, including how we've used our bodies. The right way of seeing it is in verse 13. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. You see, the true purpose of our bodies is to bring glory to God. And that's the conclusion that he's going to reach in verse 20, to glorify God with our bodies. See, true freedom is not to live however you want. That's in fact slavery because our selfish desires are harmful and addictive and they eventually destroy us. True freedom is to live how God has made us to live, to glorify him with our lives. See, God's limitation of sex only to marriage is not restrictive, it's liberating. Because God created our bodies to serve him. And he knows that, that God honouring sex can only occur in the context of a covenant commitment within the loving confines of a marriage. And moreover, Paul tells us in verse 14, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. See, you know, our bodies are not just something evil that is to be used now and then done away with uh, when we get to heaven. And that's what the Greek philosophy around Corinth taught and probably what the Corinthians believed. Uh, in chapter 15, Paul has to insist 
on the bodily resurrection of Christians at the end and the rejection of uh, their here and now attitude to life, to eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. No, what we do with our bodies now matters because our bodies are not just a temporary container from which we will later break free. Our bodies have a real future past the grave because just like Jesus, we'll be resurrected bodily with a transformed spiritual body. And that means that how I treat my body now matters. What I do with my body is not a spiritual irrelevance. It is profoundly important to live otherwise, as if what I do with my body doesn't matter, is a serious mistake. In fact, as Paul goes on, he explains it's tantamount to spiritual prostitution. Well, that comes then to our second point this morning. We are part of Christ's body. We are part of Christ's body. In verses 15 to 20, Paul explains that Christians have been united to Christ, that we're a part of his body, and so we must be faithful to him and glorify him with our bodies. Look at verse 15. He says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her, for as it is written, the two will become one flesh? Here we get a deep insight into the purpose of sex. That sex is not just a one-off act that I can go through on a one-night stand that has no consequences for the future. Rather, we see here that sex is the, the glue that joins two people together as one flesh. And so God has so designed us that when we sleep with someone, we crave that intimacy again and again. And in marriage, that's perfect, isn't it? Because it, it leads to an ever-deepening intimacy between the husband and the wife. But do you see, outside of marriage, it's terribly damaging. See, if I sleep with a boyfriend or a girlfriend, and then we break up, it will be worse than crushing, won't it? Because in a very real way, I've left a part of myself behind with them. I can't accept, therefore, letting them go. Or in the realm of pornography, it becomes addictive and enslaving. Because God has created our hormones such that, that once is never enough. We, we need to look again and again and again. And because we're designed for so much more than pleasuring ourselves to a picture, our craving is never, never satisfied. And so we look at more and more pictures and then videos and then more graphic and deviant content until we come to the point of, of, of thinking how we might actually act those things out with a real person, whether a boyfriend or girlfriend or even going to see a prostitute. See, whenever I look at that picture, or I sleep with that person I'm not married to, it's actually as if I'm taking the Lord Jesus to see a prostitute. Because in the end, God has designed the physical union of sex, not just for procreation and pleasure, but to be a picture of something even more wonderful, the spiritual union 
between Christ and his people. You see that there in verse 17? He says, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Remember from Ephesians 5, marriage is, is meant to be a picture of that ultimate union between Christ and his church, so intimate that it can be described as a body, Jesus the head and, and us as the body. And sex is an amazing picture of that unity and oneness, the total acceptance and intimacy and trust between Jesus and his people. And so to be a Christian and to engage in sexual immorality then is like taking Jesus to the prostitute, defiling him. It's utterly unthinkable. And so having addressed these justifications, these excuses for sexual immorality, Paul now addresses the Corinthians and us with the strongest of commands to flee sexual immorality, point three. It's there in verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. See, he's saying, take drastic action. Don't play play as if nothing will happen. Fire is good in the fireplace, but put fire in the wrong place. You will get burnt. There are examples of this all throughout the scriptures. Remember Joseph with Potiphar's wife in Genesis 39. She moves on him to seduce him, and he doesn't wait around to see what's going to happen. He runs for it. He prefers to run out of the house half-naked than put himself in the danger of sexual immorality. There's the graphic warnings that we read in Proverbs 5 to 7. Proverbs 5 verse 3. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Chapter 7. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim she has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. See, the Bible says, run, run away. Sex is very good within marriage. But like any good thing, it will cause great harm if it's not handled correctly. The internet, atomic fusion, knives, they're all good things, but only in their right place, in the wrong place. They are so destructive, they will kill. And so Paul is saying, if you're not married, don't play with the fire of sexual immorality. You will get hurt. If you are married, don't give in to temptation to be immoral out with, with someone outside of your marriage. Don't watch R-rated movies. If you're struggling with pornography, take action. Tell a brother or sister of your struggles. Install some accountability software on your computer like Covenant Eyes. I've had that on my computer for many years. Read a book like Tim Chester's captured by a better vision that will, will give you practical steps to deal with an addiction to pornography, whatever it takes. And if you're dating and you're, 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 you've been already been tempted to cross physical boundaries with your girlfriend or boyfriend, take drastic action. Stop. Talk about it. Set proper boundaries. Like never sleep in the same house as a boyfriend or girlfriend, or, or worse, don't live together if you're not married. 
Never go into each other's bedrooms. Never go on holidays together. Never share a hotel room. Never engage in lingering kisses and touches that arouse the other person. How foolish to do such things, thinking that nothing will ever happen. It will happen. Because the way that God has made us is that unless checked, our hormones will crave for more and more until we do cross the line. And then in regret, we must live with the consequences, especially in the the case that we break up. And every sexual experience from that point on is tainted by the memories of the first. And if you're married and you feel yourself being drawn emotionally or physically to someone who's not your spouse, then take action, drastic action. Stop messaging them. Stop purposely talking to them. Stop fantasizing about them in your thoughts. Concentrate your thoughts again on your spouse. Because our hormones are such that it is possible to really love your spouse and fall in love with someone else. And adultery happens. Divorce happens. 78,000 divorces in the last one and a half years since the pandemic began in Malaysia. It destroys lives. Flee sexual immorality. Or you will regret it. And if you're listening today and you think, oh, well, it would never be me. I would never fall into any of those sins. Heed Paul's advice from 1 Corinthians 10. He says, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. See, if you ever, if you ever think you're not capable of crossing the line, you'll never get addicted to porn or worse. You're actually in the greatest danger. There is a way out, but you must take it. You must flee. Don't be complacent. Because we have, as Christians, a spiritual union with the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been saved by him. His spirit lives within us. We must glorify him with our bodies. So Paul closes our passage, verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Here is an amazing truth. If you are a Christian, the almighty, holy God of the universe has taken up residence in your heart. You are a temple for the Holy Spirit. What a thought. What a privilege. Just think about it. In the Old Testament, God's people were banned from his presence. Any stain or defect would make them unclean. And if they entered into God's presence as sinful human beings, they would be struck down dead immediately. That happened to some of them. But the holy, righteous, almighty God of the universe sent his son to give his life on the cross, to bring us out of this slavery to sin and death, And not only that, God poured out his spirit to take up residence in our hearts so that individually and together we might fulfill all that the temple in the Old Testament stood for as God himself dwells in our hearts, ruling us and directing us. 
And if that is true, if the holy God of the universe dwells in our hearts, then how can we go on in sin? How can we go on ignoring his designs for sex and for marriage? It's a serious matter. And I think that's made clear by that phrase where he says that the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. All other sins are outside the body. The sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Now, it's not entirely clear what he means by that. But certainly, he is, by that statement, putting sexual sin in its own class. I take it the reason for that is because the, the act of sex unites our body with another in such a deep way. Sex is meant for, for marriage. Sex is meant for bonding us to our spouse. So that sexual sin, where we, where, where we step outside of God's design for marriage, it has deep and long-lasting effects on our bodies. As Christians, our bodies belong to the Lord. He doesn't want us to harm our bodies. He wants us to be who he's made us to be, a holy temple. He wants us to glorify him with our bodies. Well, as we conclude, uh, let us remember the warning and encouragement from God's word that we looked at last week. Firstly, the warning. We must not be deceived if there is unrepentant sexual sin in my life, sin that I refuse to fight, I refuse to remove, sin that I refuse to repent of, it's a serious matter. Remember last week we saw in chapter 1, chapter 6, verse 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, Paul is not talking there about the person who has made a desperate mistake, for which they are profoundly sorry, and has turned to Jesus for forgiveness. He's speaking in these verses of the person who embraces sin as a way of life who continues in their sin in an unrepentant way. And God in his grace warns us, don't be deceived. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't buy the lie that sin doesn't matter, that sin won't have any consequences. Be assured that it does, that God takes it very seriously indeed. And so it may be today that you need to take radical action. Maybe with your computer. Maybe in your relationship, in your marriage. Do you need to turn away from sexual immorality? Do you need to make some difficult and radical decisions to change? Do you need to start glorifying God in your body, which itself will be glorified with Christ in the new creation? That's the warning. Don't be deceived. Make sure you repent of sexual sin. And let's end with the encouragement. Don't despair. Let's end on a wonderful word of hope. I have no doubt that every one of us listening today is guilty in these areas. Myself included. 
I think all of us are sexual sinners. Maybe not in our actions, but certainly in our thoughts, in our hearts. We've all thought things, said things, done things that we would be ashamed of if they saw the light of day. We only need to mention words like purity, pornography, lust, crossing the line. And for many of us, the guilt, we will immediately feel it weighing heavily upon us. But the gospel brings wonderful hope to sexual failures like you and I. Look at verse 11 again. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. See what it's saying? No matter, no matter who I am, no matter what I've done in the past, I can be washed, I can be sanctified, I can be justified. Jesus' blood shed on the cross means I can be washed. Sin, and especially sexual sin, often makes us feel dirty, stained. But Jesus' blood can wash away all our sins, even serious sexual sin, even repeated sexual sin, even sin that we've been committing for decades, sin that makes us feel so soiled, dirty before God. Because there on the cross, Jesus himself took our guilt, took our sin, he bore the punishment, paid in full, so that we can be washed clean of our sins. Not only that, Jesus' blood means that we can be sanctified, that means made holy, blameless, set apart for him. Often when we sin sexually, we, we might feel unwanted by God, ugly before him. But through Jesus' death, we're, we're purified, we're set apart to be his special child. And finally, Jesus' blood means we can be justified. That means not guilty before God. Perhaps if we've sinned sexually, we wonder, uh, could it ever be forgiven by God? No, we can't even forgive ourselves for what we've done. How could God forgive us? But at the cross, not only does Jesus take our punishment that we rightly deserve in our place. But he also declares us righteous, as if we never sinned. He gives us a, a fresh start, a, a clean slate. That's what justification means. Declared right with God, righteous, not guilty. And so that is the promise of the gospel. That is the promise of God to you and to I, as we turn to the Lord Jesus. You might think, you don't know me. You don't know what I've done. Or what was done to me by others. True. But no matter what sexual sin lies in our past, we can go to the cross. We can find there the joy of sins forgiven. A loving Lord who embraces us and welcomes us. We can find hope, forgiveness, acceptance, freedom. In him. Because we've been bought at a price that the precious blood of Jesus was shed, uh, spilled for us, so that we could be washed and sanctified and justified. And so now, in response to his grace, 
we can commit ourselves to living out a whole new identity as his cleansed, holy, righteous people. And God's design for sex is, is so beautiful, so pure, so fulfilling, so delightful. We'll see that more next week. He created sex. He created us to enjoy in him all that sex within marriage points to. And so don't settle for less. Do not be deceived. Flee sexual immorality. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Glorify God with your body. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for buying us with the precious blood of the Lord Jesus. We thank you that you have united us to Christ in this most amazing spiritual union. That you have filled us with your spirit to be your holy temple. And Lord, knowing these things, help us to flee sexual temptation. Help us to flee sexual immorality. To, to live out the new identity that we have in Christ. Help us to glorify you with our bodies. And where we have failed, where we feel that dirtiness or that guilt, help us, Lord, to repent and know the forgiveness, the washing, the cleansing that Jesus has won for us on the cross. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.